0: Hi, and welcome to episode number eight in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rodian Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Mike Resso from Keysight Technologies. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me on our show here today. Um, I've known you for 40 30 years. A long 25 time. Years, a long time. time. We traveled around the world together. Yeah. Had a, had a lot of fun. And, yeah. And now it's a chance to meet up with you at, at DesignCon. Yeah. Now, as long as I've known you, you've always been at Keysight. Is that kind of where you started out? Your, your yeah, career? yeah.
1: You know, it's been 25 years. Because it was HP then. It was HP when I started, then Agilent, yeah. now Keysight. Yeah. But I, I did have a, a short stint in the aerospace defense industry for Hughes Aircraft Company. I, I worked okay. at Santa Barbara Research Center right out of school, UCSB, and uh, I worked on the common module infrared detector radiometry test wow. line. Wow.
0: And what was that used on?
1: Um, tow missiles, advanced okay. attack Apache helicopters, things like that. Okay. And then from that,
0: it was the HP way?
1: It was, it was optical, and then, and then it was OCLI,
0: optical coding laboratories, okay. and then HP. Wow. And, and so, as long as I've known you, you've always been involved in VNAs or the analysis of frequency and S-parameter kind of measurements.
1: Yeah, so it started um, in the early days of time domain reflectometry. So I learned how to spell TDR from a good colleague of ours who's no longer with us, but Craig Kirkpatrick uh, was a longtime HP uh, colleague of mine. And so he taught me how to spell TDR. I learned the intuitive nature of looking at a Pete's profile and how you could get so much insight. And that's what really supercharged me and to get so excited about signal integrity. And then then just moving throughout the company in different groups, I learned vector network analysis and multi-domain
0: characterization of interconnects and it's just been fascinating for me so I, I've really had a really lucky career and and so most of the time recently has been in the VNA side of things
1: it has been the last 10 15 years has been uh, vector network analyzers and looking at high frequency um, analysis de embedding
0: things that are you know the more challenging stuff yeah. get, gets tricky and at some point along the way you became an evangelist for PLTS. Yeah. When, when, did, when did that get started?
1: Yeah, so originally it was a small company that we purchased and um, they had all their code written in Rocky Mountain Basic. So of course, wow. yeah, believe it or not. So when the, and, and there was like really interesting uh, shortcuts if you, you know, shift key, tab, delete, write <laughs> comma, you could get special secret commands. Well, we had to fix that and put in more traditional coding. And that was where it started. And um, I took care of uh, uh, applications to engineering and sales development um, in the Far East. So I started going to China a lot and I found out Shenzhen, China is ground zero for PCB manufacturing and high speed cables for internet. And so it, it kind of grew from there. What does PLTS stand for again? Uh, Physical layer test system.
0: Okay, and that's still the product still out there it's still like, the, under many generations
1: it's still the product and yeah. every year there's a new revision and so basically we just call the product today plts 2022. okay and so every yeah. every, every design con is our stake in the sand for when the new release comes out okay. so when covid came out it was kind of a, a conundrum when do we release the product there's no design con uh-huh. so you know yeah. we had to pick some dates yeah. but that's where it started.
0: Yeah, I've always said that if you have a VNA and you don't have PLTS, you're leaving so much information on the table, on the instrument because PLTS does such a great job of analysis right. of the, of the s parameters.
1: And, and the, the really cool thing is because of the interface, a high-speed digital engineer who's just used to oscilloscopes and TDRs perhaps, they can make a, a VNA do backflips and really wow. sophisticated things without
0: having to be a microwave expert. So, so that's interesting. So you've taken an instrument that's predominantly in you know, RF domain world of, of the RF designers and with the software interface turn the information in it into something that SI engineers can use.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and that's what attracted me too because, you know, I, I took one course in field and wave theory and uh-huh. I said, forget it, I'm going digital. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it turns out that me and a half
0: a million other engineers did the same thing, but but now we're, we're all on the even playing field. Uh-huh. So what are some of the things that PLTS is doing these days? Well, so for me, the the interesting stuff, uh, of course, automatic fixture removal. Okay,
1: de-embedding. De-embedding, and and we've got some really cute uh, algorithms that that are pretty straightforward and easy to use, but also multi-channel simulation. So we we don't get deep into uh, schematic design, like ADS perhaps, which is another tool from Keysight, but we've got a, a graphical user interface where your S-parameter that you made a measurement is represented with a a little green PCB trace. And you can can drag and drop a transmitter and a receiver on the left and right hand side of this graphic to complete a channel. And then you could do pre-emphasis, PAM4 analysis, CTLE equalization, DFE, FFE, play like a sandbox. But it's not simulation per se. Because you've got a calibrated
0: S parameter that you you're you, using the behavioral model of the measurement yeah. as the representation of the interconnect, and how do you get the driver and the receiver models? Is it Ibis based? Or well, you own? can
1: you can drop an Ibis model in, but normally you just have a uh, interface where you have a arbitrary binary uh, okay. you sequence. Generate
0: the RBS signal. You
1: generate. You pick your data rate, your rise time, the length of the pattern, and uh, you just go. So it's it's kind of a simple interface but you can see
0: what if you know I double the data rate, triple yeah. the data rate, how does that affect me? So you can take a measurement of your of your channel, embed the fixtures, take that behavioral model, add some simple drivers receivers and see the eye diagram right while you're right after you've done the measurement the v, the S parameter That's right. Your
1: That's right. And yeah. and so, you know, the PAM4 eye diagram we we say is not really simulated but it's synthesized. And, and what we mean by that is that you're taking not just a, like an HFS model, you're taking a real S-parameter measurement and then you extract the impulse response, you do a convolution with this PRBS pattern uh-huh. and that's how you get
0: the eye. Uh-huh. And so you, you get the standard kind of digital domain uh, simulated performance of the channel, but you also get all the time domain display, traditional TDR kind of information. Exactly.
1: Exactly, and, and it's a, a quick thing, right? Computers are pretty fast these days. Yeah. So bouncing between return loss and TDR is literally 500 milliseconds, and you get a complete waveform. So it's, it, it changes the way you analyze things because it's so fast and easy.
0: And it's not really tied to a specific DNA. You use anybody's S-parameters to do the analysis? Exactly, yeah. yeah it's, as long as you had a touchstone file or a city file, You you import that, and you're ready to go. So it sounds like it does a lot of the things that I can do with ADS right now. So just internally, how do you deal with the fact, hey, you got this software that does a lot of things that ADS does. How do you not compete but complement?
1: Yeah, good question, good question. We we train our field applications engineers product positioning. and, And the basic idea is this. If you know how to use ADS, and you can use ADS, use it it's really a more powerful simulation engine Uh that's more versatile. But if you don't know how to build a schematic and you have to get some information rather quickly, PLTS is a very good alternative. Um,
0: So So it's got a really low learning curve and for very specialized kinds of things, it's instant answers almost.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, So ADS is a very powerful product. We love it. Um, but if you don't have
0: the time or, or don't have the knowledge, then going into PLTS works great. So this gets into that area of, it's not just having an instrument, a measurement instrument, and getting data and seeing that. It's, it's marrying that, that measurement you get and the analysis of it with some simulation. Right. So PLTS kind of gets one foot in the measurement side and one foot in the simulation side. And, and, and ADS is kind of like the mother version of PLTS that can do so much more. Exactly, that's exactly right, huh. yeah. And are you guys doing more to unify that, that measurement world of the instruments that we all know about from Keysight and the simulation side, the ADS side?
1: Yeah, how do we bring those two things together? Yeah. Yeah. So
0: there, there's a couple ways,
1: you know, you have to have uh, some some interchange of functionality between the products themselves. So we have some features like automatic fixture removal where you can pull out some code, a block of code, and then insert that into a new product or an old product, but you share that. So it's a common platform that gives the same answers for the same functionality. So we've done that.
0: Okay. So in ADS right now, you have, you've implemented the automatic fixture removal?
1: Uh, that's actually coming.
0: Ah, okay. Great. Um,
1: the, what great. we've done now is we've put firmware of AFR automatic fixture into the PNA, oh, okay. our, our vector network yeah. analyzer, and also our digital communications analyzer, which is the uh, uh, the equivalent time sampling oscilloscope that includes the TDR module. So, so you get that that AFR capability in different areas, and uh, and I. Hopefully we'll get it into ADS and in not the too distant future. But also it, it's part of, of training. You have to make um, your field engineers that are facing the customers in, in yeah. their labs familiar with both. And, and you have to be able to speak two languages. Yeah. It, it's literally yeah. another language. But when you, when you have that power together of measurement and simulation, you, you get insight that
0: you normally don't get. Right and I have to say you guys are uniquely positioned with you know the top of the line measurement instruments to get the the, the measured data and the simulation tool and i find that combination of ads and vnas and and uh, and scopes is so powerful to do that measurement simulation correlation yeah and maybe it comes together at the customer that understands that value and and so you guys are have to figure out how do you have a sales guy used to selling instruments and sales guy used to selling software sold to that same person that understands that value right. of that measurement simulation correlation?
1: It's, like, it's almost like if you travel abroad and you have a translator with you who can speak Chinese.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, it opens doors to restaurants or interesting um, places to see because of the language that this translator speaks. Well, when you work in an engineering team, That can speak your language of measurements and also the language of simulation they will open doors for you in the Uh same exact Uh way
0: yeah yeah i use ads and and uh and uh vnas all the time and and boy if you can take the measurement off the screen and bring it into the simulation environment to compare directly with the measurement yes then you're able to do you know we, we we've done Projects together for 20 years about hacking interconnects.
1: That's right, and hacking the backplane. Hacking the backplane is the very first one. <laughs> and, and, it,
0: and it required that combination of the features in ADS that allow you to build topology based models so that you can parameterize and change and then adjust and compare the simulation to the measurement. Yep. And I always thought that was such a powerful combination. And you guys are unique in the industry having the really great instrument tools, the hardware tools, and the really great software tools to combine them together. Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful
1: combination. I I, I would agree. In in the past, when the data rates were slower, you know, you could get away with maybe one or the other, doing simulation Uh or measurement. But today, when you're looking at 800 gigabits or 1.6 tera, you have to do both. It's part of the design cycle. Verification, correlation, and so that's what we're trying to teach. You know, all the new engineers coming into the field that are learning signal integrity, you know, learn a little bit out of your core expertise area and, and learn enough to speak the language to communicate to the other engineer on the other side of the fence. Now, that's
0: interesting. So you're finding that in your customer base, you have customers that are very hardware centric and customers that are software centric. You don't find very many that have that overlap, but that's what you're trying to stimulate.
1: Yeah, there's a few. Okay. Uh, you, you go to the, uh, the, the big companies with deep pockets and big labs, there you will find uh, if there's a team of 12, two or three of them are equally versed in both simulation and measurement and they're usually the team leaders.
0: Okay, you know that's really interesting the dynamics of the expertise that yeah I, I usually encounter teams where there's a lot of hardware guys a lot of stuff guys that are in the lab doing doing measurement and there are other guys that are doing the simulation and they need to cross fertilize a lot more. Yep, that connection It
1: used to be you could just like toss a, a, a touchstone file over the cubicle wall like a little hand grenade and let the other guy... other oh, That team is going to take care of it now. Yeah, but yeah. now that's not really the case. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'll go to my simulation colleague to verify that I did it the right way. Uh-huh. So yeah. the, you, get, you get these aggressive, bright, young engineers that are
0: learning to do both and they, they just grow. So that's a really important point. The more valuable... Uh, you, you can increase your value as an engineer and team member by gaining the skill in both the hardware and the software to see that connection between them. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears a little to talk about DesignCon. So we're here at DesignCon, the show's just been been finished here. Before we get into the stuff that you were doing, I want to get a little bit of your impression about the show. Anything yeah. stand out of what you saw?
1: Well, you know, before? it's, it's kind of like uh, not going to a baseball game for a couple seasons. You know, you miss all the players. You miss the excitement of the Grand Slam. And you come here and it's, it's exciting. You, you just see all your old friends and you see, you know, all the people walking through, uh, learning, asking questions. Uh, my, my uh, I, I just enjoy... Meeting all of the new people not just the old colleagues uh, and the friends that I've known for years like yourself And I have to say it's been such a such a pleasurable career And and it just reminds me of how lucky I am when I see all my friends that I get to work with uh, And how much I miss seeing them so being a being a social animal like most of us are
0: this is this is a big deal So yeah, I agree, there's that social aspect. What about in terms of the technology that you've seen? Walk the floor, talk to folks, go to some of the the talks, anything stand out as, wow, that was really cool, didn't know about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I I would say that um, for me, the interconnect is always really fascinating and and seeing how small some of these uh, connectors can get and how how well they can control crosstalk in such tight spaces. You know, I, I really enjoyed, I, right across the, the walkway from the Keyside booth was Samtech, and they've got their Novaray mezzanine connectors with their bullseye technology. And so I just wandered over there and took a look at the, the little tiny connectors, and, oh, okay, I know the 2.4 millimeter coaxial connect. We use those on the front of our instruments. Oh, and there's the 1.85, and, oh, once in a while you need to go to that 1 millimeter with the 60 or 110 gigahertz Oh, you've got a 1.35 millimeter? What the heck is that? I mean, so you you discover these things that uh, it's just it's just cool.
0: Yeah, I, I saw the Samtech booth. They had they had a they, they've had a couple of years now 112 gigabit per second pam four systems working.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it uh, it's amazing the speeds, and I, I have to say one of the papers that uh, I co-authored. Um, was on 224 gigabits oh per second and and I, I had to preference my introduction to the audience saying look we're not gonna come in and, and give you answers we're gonna do a feasibility study and show you our experiment so don't expect to have solutions but this is gonna stimulate
0: a methodology that huh. you need to develop in your lab huh. so but let's talk about that because so um you know, that really pushing the limit. I've seen one or two other companies demonstrating 224 gigabit per second. It's also PAM4 is what you guys did? Yep,
1: yep, exactly. So, of course, there's no prototype SERDES chipset that exists. So, in order to even simulate a chip to module and look at channel operating margin, which is the figure of merit that will look at the whole channel, not just the interconnect. And we had to actually emulate a, a source of that speed using one of our BERTs and the AWG pattern generator. So we ended up doing characterizations and pulse responses of our instruments just so we could convolve that transfer function with the device under test, which was a mezzanine connector and then looking at the input of an oscilloscope, characterize that to pretend
0: it's a receiver. So we built the hardware system to emulate a channel with the transceivers. on That's the
1: end. right. So we we yeah. made we made real measurements after we emulated these 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 non-existent Cirrus uh-huh. chipsets, uh-huh. and then we compared it to the channel operating margin MATLAB script.
0: Uh-huh. And who who'd you partner with with this hardware? Well, together? of
1: course, when you do anything with channel operating margin, you have to you have to um, coordinate with Richard Mellitz. Okay, at Samtec. Yeah, at Samtec because he's kind of like the, the father of COM. And then we uh, we worked with a Professor in Italy, um, uh, Professor De Paulis, and then uh, we had a couple uh, Samtec engineers. We had a simulation person on
0: our side, um, so we, we had a whole team of experts that really were quite helpful. So the channel itself that you built that was using Samtec like uh, flyover connectors and
1: it was a it was a Novaray mezzanine kit. So it consisted of the mezzanine connector and a fixture that was on the input and output. And we had it with one millimeter coaxial connectors with 110 gigahertz VNA uh, with this with this 224 gigabit per second source.
0: So the let's see at 224 gigabit PAM4. Then that's a 56 gigahertz uh, Nyquist. Exactly. So you needed... At least 56 gigahertz bandwidth, and you used 110 bandwidth yeah. in the VNA.
1: Yeah, we did. Wow. But we looked at the the resultant uh, S parameters of insertion loss, and you know when you get at those high frequencies, there's some things you can tell that are not indicative of the channel under test. So we we saw uh, we truncated the S parameters at 90 gigahertz between 90 and 110 there were things going on with with connectors and phase stability uh-huh. of cables that we knew weren't pertinent to the experiment so we did we did truncate that data but we had good data up to 90 gig gigahertz and so the, 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 the punchline of the whole experiment was how much bandwidth do I need
0: yeah. to
1: make the measurement yeah. which is the golden question and uh, what we determined experimentally is that 1.3 times Nyquist was was what gave you the best answer
0: at the wow. lowest possible analysis, frankly. So you could take your measured S-parameters straight up to 110, and then truncate them to a smaller smaller bandwidth, looking at the results, and that's where you get your rule of thumb of about 1.3 times the Nyquist. Right. Do you think that scales to lower data rate as well?
1: It's hard to say. It okay. really is hard to say because Different applications will look at it differently. It, it's um, part of the problem is the amount of money you need to spend uh-huh. to get the high frequency equipment, and so those are the tough decisions. Yeah. You know, if you go to your boss and um, you you ask for budget to get a VNA that's 110 gigahertz, that's a big chunk of cash. And if your boss finds out you really didn't need that, then uh-huh. he'll maybe not give you carte blanche the next time you ask for budget.
0: Yeah. And but, it's not just the instruments; it's all the connectors that are really expensive. Oh, the accessories that, that go along with it. And, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, a one millimeter um, male-to-male cable is a thousand bucks. Yeah. And um, But, you know, the the worst thing that could happen as an engineer getting test equipment for his lab is that you, you buy a piece of test equipment and you do spend a moderate amount of money, which moderate in these days is still six figures. Yeah but it doesn't give you the measurement data you need because uh-huh. you uh-huh. didn't go high enough. Uh-huh. So that's why this is an important question. Yeah. And so we we, we, uh, we we do measurement science and we give our best information we can, but you can't always apply it as a rule of thumb everywhere. Uh-huh. You really have to kind of look at individual applications.
0: You know, one of the things that i found, I've talked to a lot of PCB fab vendors and they all say that When an engineer is kind of pushing the envelope and trying to do something a little bit beyond the the normal, it's really important to talk to the fab vendor and understand their limitations. And what you're saying is, if you're just a designer and designing some hardware and you want to do some measurements that are kind of pushing the edge a little bit, it's really important to talk to the tool vendors that have experience at this to get the advice of just exactly what do you need from the measurement side and the instrument side in order to do these Bleeding edge kind of measurements.
1: Exactly, exactly. The best thing you can do is to ask advice of a, of a local field engineer, applications engineer. A lot of times we want to make extrapolation of, of information to guesstimate. And, and a lot of times you have to use rules of thumb because there's nothing else to go by. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to budgeting for lab equipment, you can get a lot more accurate information by producing um, uh, uh, a, a, an example of the exact measurements you intend on making and presenting that to your test equipment vendor and say, look, this is what my device under test looks like. If you have one, bring it out into the lab, show the measurements you have made and then explain what you're trying to do. And,
0: and there's, there's a conversation that needs to go on you're really doing pathfinding for a lot of these leading edge companies that want to move in that space. You're kind of leading the way. Of here, here's some examples of, of how to do these kind of measures What it takes.
1: That's right. That's right. And and see, as a, as a test equipment vendor, we have to be a half step ahead uh-huh. of all of the leading it used labs. To be one step now. It's <laughs> hard to do
0: that. It's only half a step. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. A half step is is all you need. But you do have to have that. That equipment available as the need pops up but it takes 18 months at a minimum to develop new equipment Uh from from scratch so so we have to be aware of what's gonna it's like a crystal ball that you have to see what's happening where's the industry going what measurements are my my uh, my customers gonna need to make in two years Uh well we better
0: we better have that instrument ready So the punchline to the paper that you presented in this work with the SAMTAC folks on uh, 224 gigabit channels, so you guys built the hardware, you used a BERT and a SCOPE as the transmit and receiver, and you were able to take the the behavioral model, then the measurements of the channel, and do simulation, and you had the measurements to compare it to.
1: Exactly. So there was measurements that were made on real hardware, and then there were models and simulation that were done in parallel and and correlating the source the channel and the receiver on each of those sides
0: uh-huh. what was the bottom line then are you saying that yeah if you do this channel correctly and given these transceiver performance metrics uh, yep you can do 224 gigabits per second
1: yeah Yeah, that that was the answer. You know, we know that 224 is going to be here. There's no doubt. There's going to be still development needed on uh, tuning and getting the right taps selected and the type of equalization. But but once it's there, you're going to be able to make measurements. There'll be equipment available. um, Anything beyond 1.3 times Nyquist. is really not necessary. There's not additional information. There's a point of diminishing returns. That's
0: um, cost performance wise. It's right. It's not worth the extra cost. Right.
1: You know, so so that that was kind of the bottom line of the paper. It, it was, you know, this is, we know this is coming. Of course, someone says, what's coming after 224? Yeah,
0: right. right. <laughs> but there's still a lot of question about, can we get to 224 by copper? And what you've demonstrated is, yeah, you probably can. Yeah. If you do everything right. Yep. And it takes that combination of the measurement and simulation to understand what's going on under the hood in the channel with the transceivers. That's
1: right. That's right. And, you know, PAM-4 is, is, is pretty uh, pervasive these days. And, uh, you know, I, I think we could probably go to PAM-8 to, to, to allow us to go faster, get more information within one bit period. Um, beyond PAM-8, it's... it's, But if you do
0: PAM-8, don't you have to ship, like, a high-speed scope with every receiver? Because isn't that kind of what that scope (laughs) does? You need all all those uh, vertical resolution to get PAM-8?
1: Maybe you need some retimers in there, (laughs) either.
0: (laughs) Well, at least you've given us hope that hey, there is a viable path to at least the next generation of 224 with copper interconnects. And that's yeah. always one of the important questions. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's, you know, this this technology is still three, four years away before it goes to production.
0: Well, Mike, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us here. And it's been a pleasure chatting chat with you. Eric, I
1: appreciate it so much. You have no idea. It's great to see you. It's good to be back. Good to be back.
0: Thanks. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Mike Resso for joining us and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. Thanks everyone for joining us and I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition.